Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 229, How Not to Write a Story, an interview with Lisa Cron, coming to you on Thursday, December 31st, 2020. Well, first of all, I have to say Happy New Year. I hope that you are doing something fun and safe. Um, maybe you're doing something like what John and I are doing, which is we're taking a little break from watching all the Marvel Universe movies all the way through again. If you remember, I also we also did this during the summer for our summer vacation, and we just decided we had to do it again. <laughs> but Today and tomorrow on the 31st and the 1st, we are taking two days to watch all three Hobbits in a row and then all three Lord of the Rings in a row because, yes, it must be done. We always have a tradition on New Year's Day that first thing in the morning, you know, we've got our pajamas and our juice and John's tea and maybe breakfast. Maybe we start the movies even before we've had breakfast because we have a tendency to choose these long series that take if I remember right, Lord of the Rings is going to take us 13 hours to get all the way through. It's very exciting. Well, that's a really, really long day. <laughs> and when you count in bathroom breaks, um, it's that's a really long day, but it's so much fun. So whatever it is that you consider fun, I hope that you are having a good time doing it. I hope that you're safe and well. And I'm excited for this new year. We've got new choices, new opportunities, new chances, and new possibilities for things that we can do with our writing. In uh, all of the episodes this month, we've been talking about editing. And if you are finding that the editing process has become a little trickier than you expected it to be, or more frustrating, um, you just want a little bit of extra help, then get a hold of me. You can find me at rightnowworkshop.com forward slash writing coach and you know, reach out and see whether or not book coaching is something that you want to do and whether or not book coaching with me is the right person to do it with. Um, I love, love, love working one-on-one -on -one with people. I helped a couple of people last year finish books. Uh, one was published on Thanksgiving day. That was very exciting for both of us. Uh, and I also have other different things that we can do. I've got a small group coaching program that's always 10 people or less. All together, we go through a two-month period uh, together, encouraging each other, learning, um, brainstorming, all sorts of fun things for eight weeks. And then if what you need is just some other people to um, motivate you, like you just need a little bit more motivation, I also have a membership group that is all about meeting together for writing sprints two or three times a week, and then telling our, our writing writing, um, what am I trying to say, word counts. Um, and sometimes somebody's not writing because they're thinking things through. Um, sometimes I spend the time actually writing the backstory that I'm trying to figure out in order to start the actual writing of the next part, uh, which is actually something that Lisa and I talk a little bit in this, uh, about in this episode. Um, so anyway, if you are interested in just like joining a group of people who get together and write at the same time every week, you can join that for three months for just $105. And then we also have a guest speaker every month and um, sometimes other special little things. And it's great because everybody um, really is so supportive, very encouraging. We definitely are celebrating each other's wins and, um, and we do it all on Zoom. So it's like being live and in person, but you can be anywhere in the world. So that's pretty cool. So again, just go to rightnowworkshop.com forward slash writing coach and let me know whether or not you want to talk to see if any of these things are the, the right thing that you need in 2021. In the meantime, uh, also keep in mind that uh, I am changing the podcast to be in season starting in January 2021. So the next three weeks will be off and the next season of the show will start on Thursday, January 28th, 2021. Got to start getting ready to say 2021 all the time. It's so easy to say 2020. The first time I was looking at the number, I was like, how do I say that? 2021, 2021. I was like, I don't know. How am I going to say it? <laughs> so Happy New Year. I hope that you are um, full of both 
peace and joy and, you know, the, the nice feelings of the season, but also a little bit of growing excitement about what's going to happen in your writing career in the next year. So with that in mind, I am giving you over to uh, Lisa and her fabulous talk on uh, brain science and how our brains are wired to hear story and read story and understand story in a certain way, and therefore why we need to write it in a certain way. So I hope you find it as interesting as I do. And uh, there's some great tips that you can take through and also just a lot of uh, things for you to think about and ask yourself, well, do I agree? What do, how does this work for me? Oh, I see how my brain actually, yeah, does it this way. So this makes sense. And it, it might be um, something that you are totally in agreement with already, or it might be something that challenges you. And it's always good to uh, have a challenge now and then. So I was excited for Lisa to come on the show and, and talk about um, all the things that we do talk about in this episode. So without further ado, and one more happy new year to you, because I love saying that. <laughs> Here is the show with Lisa. Today's guest is Lisa Cron. Lisa is the author of Wired for Story, Story Genius, and in March, her new book will be published, Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and Change Minds in Business and in Life. Lisa has worked in publishing at W.W. W. Norton and John Muir Production Publications as an agent at the Angela Rinaldi Literary Agency as a producer on shows for Showtime and Court TV, and as a story consultant for Warner Brothers and the William Morris a Agency. Since 2006, she's been an instructor in the UCLA Extension Writers Program, and she has been on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts MFA Program in Visual Narrative in New York City. Welcome, Lisa. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's so exciting to have you. And anyone who's not watching on YouTube is totally missing out your very cool background behind you. I like clowns. What can I say? I like them. And they kind of look like the clowns. Like maybe I might in the dark walk to the other side of the street. I, I personally think you should do that with any clown. <laughs> but yes, these are these are very odd, strange clowns. And I don't know why I like them, but I find myself drawn to them in inexplicable ways. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's part of the, the creative writer, visual kind of person. We, we just see things and we're captivated. Yeah, exactly. Strange things. And it's like, wait, what is that? And that's always the thing that grabs us, that thing. You know, we've got that avidity for patternicity. So we're looking for patterns. And what grabs us is something that breaks a pattern. And yeah. it's like, wait, that? Or wait, what if, and you know, then we're off and running hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. I'm accidentally going off on a tangent, but today, uh, when we're talking, it's the middle of December. Yeah. But when uh, people are listening to us, it's December 31st. Happy new year, everybody. Yeah, 2020 finally in the rear view. Yes. Thankfully. <laughs> it's like the year that was a decade is now over. Let's yes. do my only hope is that we're not going in 2021 going, oh, I wish I could go back to 2020. That wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, <that'd> be terrible. <laughs> Don't let that happen. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll only, we'll hopefully that will only happen in, um, you know, the people who are writing dystopian fiction and that sort of thing. We'll, we'll pretend that it, there's no chance that it could happen. <laughs> but um, this morning I saw a trailer for Marvel's what if series. Oh my gosh. It looks so good. You said, what if, and I was like, Oh my gosh, just watching the trailer. My mind's like making all these jumps and stuff to do things, see things that it, Oh yeah. I, I love story. What if <laughs> indeed <laughs> now? So the last time you were here was April, 2018. It feels like six months ago and of 14 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Both sides are true. Right. <laughs> and then I don't know if I uh, had sent you an email then or not, but I also um, filled a spot that I needed and, and presented that again as an encore episode in November, 2019. So you've actually been on the show twice before. <laughs> I am very happy to hear that. Yay. <laughs> okay. So you and I have been sending emails and talking back and forth by email, um, talking about you know, I wanted to do this kind of mini season of all editing episodes for December. And mostly just because it occurred to me, well, 
um, every year, I think, oh, I should do this um, as sort of the other side of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month in November. And you were sharing that you have some really strong opinions about that. And I said, great, you should definitely be on the show. So you also, though, don't just have strong opinions. But the thing that I'm excited about is that you have a lot of experience and knowledge that backs up your opinions. And so I want people to really be thinking about that as they're listening to you. Um, you have some neuroscience background. All three of your books have neuroscience elements to it, which I'm totally geeking out about. So uh, I kind of feel like introduce yourself as you see fit, and then let's just start going with this topic. Okay, well, let's just, I mean, I just want to dive into first my feelings about NaNoWriMo so that people people who deeply love it might go, you know what, I think I'm going to change and look at something else. Just because I really honestly think it is the worst thing that you can do. The, the notion of writing 50,000 words is in a month. I mean, can you write 50,000 words in a month? Of course. Will those 50,000 words have meaning? Of course. In the dictionary, but not in terms of a story. It's not an endurance contest. It is not what story is about. And I know to take on NaNoWriMo, and I, I happily, as, as I was just saying to Kitty before we began, and I say this to every writer I work with, if the writing world were a person, meaning the world that's telling you how to write, if the writing world were a person, I would punch it in the nose and go to jail happily because there is so much misinformation out there many of the beloved writing myths are not only wrong, but they take writers in completely the wrong direction. And so I kind of want to get that out there now. I know before years ago, I think it was actually in 2012, and I was writing a monthly column for Writer on Box, which is a wonderful writing site. Uh, I remember that I site. Said, yeah, it's a great site. And I said to Therese Walsh, who, you know, who runs it, who's just a fabulous writer and wonderful person, I said, you know, I want to write something against Nano, you know, saying that I don't think NaNoWriMo is a good idea. And she said, okay, you can do that, but I just want to let you know that a couple of years ago, we had somebody write something against NaNoWriMo and she was so trolled after that, that she almost stopped writing for us wow. because it was just so, so I know it's a really beloved thing. And I really think it is part of the reason why so many men, and this was, you know, pre-NaNoWriMo, uh, you know, out of, they say, out of all of the manuscripts that are submitted to agents, they take on, the, the number out there is 96%. I was, I was talking to my own agent recently, and we were saying like, yeah, I think that number's a little, a little low. Actually, it's about 98%. Of rejections. Completely rejected. Yeah, really out of, you know, uh, and the reason is, because most manuscripts are nothing but a bunch of things that happen. And that is truly all you can do if you dive into NaNoWriMo and just start writing. But the problem is in terms of how writing is taught. Writing is taught as if it's about beautiful writing and it is not. And it's about beautiful writing and then having a plot and coming up with a bunch of things that happen. And that's what most manuscripts end up being. I think it goes back to what Flannery O'Connor, the brilliant Southern writer once quipped in an interview. She said, I find most people know what a story is until they sit down to write one. And I think that is so true. That's why when I worked as an agent and in film, almost every manuscript that came in, I can't tell you how many, if you'd ask me, what's it about? I'd say, it's about 300 pages. I have no idea. It's just about <laughs> the things that happen. And that's what happen, happens when you just start sitting down and writing, because here's the thing. Stories don't begin on page one. Page one, it, all stories begin and medius res, which is a fancy Latin way of saying in the middle of the thing, middle of the thing being the story. So page one is actually the first page of the second half of the story. If you haven't created the first half, the second half of what? You've got nothing but, again, a bunch of things that happen because stories are about how we solve a problem we can't avoid. And so if you're starting on page one and you're going to gallop forward, solve what problem? It's like saying, I'm going to write a novel about the most important turning point event in somebody's life, 
who I know absolutely nothing about. So you're starting right there and you're creating the problem, you're creating the character, how the character sees the world, which is really what we come for. We don't come for the plot, we come for how the plot affects the protagonist and forces them to see things differently, have a, a, you know, a worldview change that then allows them to solve that problem that let's face it, they've probably brought on themselves. Without the first part of the work, all you've got is a plot. And what happened, and that brings me to another thing that might make you want to punch me. Okay, so that <laughs> that's the first, is that, and I've, I've spoken at so many writers' conferences, and, and often they'll have literally, you know how you go into a writers' conference and you, and you, you know, you, 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 uh, you check in and they give you your badge, right? And so you're gonna wear this badge, and then they'll say sometimes, okay, so we're gonna put a little thing on your badge. Are you a pantser? or are you a plotter? Which one are you? Which school of writing do you fit into? And I say a pox on both your houses. Because <laughs> neither one work. Pantsing, I do not understand why people pants. And I know people want to punch me for that. I think it is the absolute positive worst way to sit down and write. Because again, you're starting on page one and you're thinking, oh, I'll just go forward and figure out how do you know? How do you know who the person is? How do you know how they're seeing the world? How do you know what the problem is? You don't. You end up going forward and almost always writing yourself off a cliff or into a drawer. I think, again, going back to, to, you know, to what we know about, about how many manuscripts get done, the other really scary statistic out there is out of 100 people who sit down to write a first draft, 97 of them give up. 97 out of 100 people do not make it to the end of the first draft. And I think a lot of those people sit down and they've got this idea and then they don't quite know what happens next or what's going on or what's happening. And then they start deciding, okay, I'll write really, really, really beautifully. Yes. And, that, and then we get the really beautiful writing. And as, as any agent will tell you, you know, a beautifully written storyless novel is, you know, it's like a beautifully written, you know, boozy pen, so what? Who cares? There's nothing to pull us in. So pantsing doesn't work. And the problem with plotting is again, plotting tends to start right there on page one. And people think, and again, I, this is never the writer. This is the writing world that makes it seem like these are your two choices. So now you're gonna come up with a bunch of things that happen. And that's not what a story is about. Stories about how what happens affects someone internally that then allows them to solve that problem that they've been forced to, to deal with scene by scene by scene by scene as we'll you know discuss as we go as we go forward but so if you've got a plot right and you've got these plot points this external you know gamut you're going to put somebody through then you plunk someone into it well they're now a generic person or if you've thought of anything about them again people will go oh i know my character really well i know my I know my protagonist i've thought about them for a long time it's like okay i hate to say it but you know like zip zero nothing because if you've not dug into it and created it it's general it's conceptual. There's no real context. So that now when you put that person onto the page, they've got to, they've got to make those plot points happen. So they become what I call these days plot enablers. So that what somebody does right there on page one, and now you know the consequence that they, they suffer from it, it doesn't matter how it makes them feel or what it does to them or how it changes how they think, or because over here in chapter five, they've got to do this thing that given what happened to them in chapter one, they never do that. Yeah, but it doesn't they have to do it anyway, because if they don't, then the plot collapses in on itself. So that's, that is truly how you end up with a story that is nothing but a bunch of things that happen. And when your goal is word count, I mean, I would say this to writers anyway, writers will go, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do X number of words a day, you know, and what is it? It's, it's 1,666 in, in NaNoWriMo, you're supposed to write a day, but writers will do that just anyway. They write a thousand words a day really bad idea. Because if you're giving yourself a word count each day, when you don't hit it, you're going to think, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing it right. Well, tomorrow I'll do twice as many. And then when you don't, after about a week, it's like, oh, maybe I should take some time off. And I think that's the way a lot of people end up not writing. Again, it's, it's, it's in no way, shape or form about, about word count. It's about digging deep and in no way, shape or form is it about starting on page one and I'm gonna write 
I mean, again, we can talk about, you know, the notion of a shitty first draft and people go, get your first draft down. Then you can go back and edit. Worst idea ever. Because what happens is if you've got this thing pouring out and then you go, okay, great, I've got it out. Now I'll go back and, you know, I know that as they say, there's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. I'll go back and I'm going to, and then you read that thing that you've written and it's sprawling all over the place and you go, fine, I'll rewrite it. But here's the thing, you know, as writers, our tacit allegiance, we're not doing this on purpose, but our tacit allegiance is to what we've already written as opposed to the story we're trying to tell, especially if we're not 100% sure what it actually is. So now the goal is to like keep as much of what we've got and to kind of find the connective tissue to hold it together. In other words, it's top down. And that absolutely positively never works. It absolutely does not. And now what didn't work to begin with really doesn't work and it's this big sprawling mess and again, that's where writers end up giving up because it doesn't start there on page one. And again, it's never the writer's fault ever that they believe that. Because for one thing, that's what we've been taught from kindergarten forward. That is what we've been taught. You get this idea as we were talking about uh, in the beginning about a what if, and you want to just go, okay, what if, what would happen if, and you never want to do that. You've got to stop and create your protagonist story specifically first, because it's not really about the what if, because that's the what. It's about the why. And the why is why would someone do what they're doing? Story is not about what, it's about why. And that's why you have to create your protagonist's story-specific worldview before you ever get to page one. But the other reason why I think we tend to believe that it is you know, that you start on page one and you go forward, letting the writing world off the hook for a second. And this is probably why the writing world has it is because that's the way that we read a book, right? If you're going to read a book, you start on page one and you very obediently, right? Reverently even, you know, read forward in chronological order, not the story necessarily, but pages till you get to the end. Yeah. So it's really easy to come out of that and go, okay, the way to, to become a, a writer is to learn to write beautiful prose as if writing beautiful prose tells a story. I mean, the story, as I'm very fond of saying, polishes the prose, not the other way around, and come up with some kind of a plot. And then if you have the talent, if you're really a writer, somehow by magic, a story appears. And it doesn't. And that's why so many people who really can be fabulous writers give up, because unless you are, and, and admittedly, there are some people who, who are naturals at it. They, for some reason, can sit down and all of the layers of story are there. The story-specific backstory is there, who they care, what's going on, and they can do it. That is, not only is it exceedingly rare, it doesn't mean that they're the best writers either. Because uh -huh. think about it, books that you really love, right? Writers you love. How often in those books do you hit that long, dry, patch and you know that feeling you're reading and there's that urgency and suddenly I always liken it to like if it's a balloon and you know how balloons sometimes will have that slow leak and you can see the air going down it's like slowly the urgency starts to go away and you're thinking all right fine I'm already like 300 pages in I'm gonna go forward and it'll pick up and then hopefully at some point it actually does yeah but that's because they haven't gone back and created what you need to create in order to actually create a story. Because here's the thing about writing and story. It's not something we invented. It's not about, and I'm gonna say a word now that again, might make you wanna not punch me, but just think what, it's not about creativity. When I taught at the School of Visual Arts um, in New York, uh, which is a great place in their MFA program. And the guy who started the program, his name's Nathan Fox. And he's like fabulous. He used to tease me all the time because he'd say, yeah, it's about being creative, but we know Lisa hates that word. <laughs> you hate the word creativity because it's general and it's generic. And what does it mean? The same way there are all sorts of writing words I'd never use, like theme. I would never use that word again, because what does it even mean? subplot word I'd never use again because it's general and generic and those are concepts we made up nothing is that to be a writer doesn't mean being creative per se because again that throws you into the I'll just unleash my creativity and we'll see what happens and you know what usually happens is you've written yourself off a cliff
The point is story itself is biological. Story is how we got here. We make sense of everything through story. That is why the, 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 the title of my new book is literally Story or Die. And I'll tell you just very quickly where that title came from. I was giving a talk many years, not many years ago, I guess, I think it was in about 2013, to a group of scientists who work for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Aeronautic Administration, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was about, they've got this really great educational thing called science on a sphere. And it's a, it's sort of like a holographic thing and you can see stuff and they had the scripts that they were, you know, that they were writing and they were so full of technical jargon <laughs> about, about like climate change that they were just giving like facts and numbers like, oh, people will hear this and then they'll understand how, you know, what we've got to do. And you, you're reading it and you're going, I don't even know what you're talking about. And, and I was giving the talk to go, no, you don't understand. You've got to personify that in a story because the way we make sense of everything, every quote unquote fact, we don't look at facts as facts per se separately objectively because there is no such thing as that the objective way that we've been taught to look at things everything is subjective we look at every fact going okay boots on the ground how is that fact going to be personified in my life and how will that affect me <laughs> given my agenda and what i want will it help me or will, I hurt, will it hurt me that is literally how our brain is that's how we got here but anyway so i was trying and the scientists and you know, from then to now, I was listening to a, a podcast recently where they were talking about the problem with science out there talking about with the vaccines is that they're not going to go, it will affect you, you know, help you this way, blah, blah, blah. And it's 100% going to do, they're like, well, there are these places where it might work and it might not. And here's all the numbers and here's all the, and that's not how we process information. If you don't give it to us in this story form, which they saw as well, that's soft science. Well, that's for children. Well, that's, why would I dumb it? Why would I? And I was saying, but they don't understand if you don't give it to us in this form, we're not gonna be able to process it. It's not gonna make sense to us. It's gonna go over our head. And I was talking to a, a friend, a friend of mine, Mark Rovner, who runs a, 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 a company called, what's it, See Something Strategies, where he helps nonprofits go in and tell their stories. And I said, how can I get, get you know, let them know that this isn't just, a method to do it. This isn't just something you can do and then you can, this is the way. And he just said, like without missing a beat, he says, we'll call your talk story or die. And it was like, yeah. And anthropologically, <laughs> that is what exactly what it is, right? It is a hundred percent. Everything, we process everything through narrative. And that's what's pulling us into your novels or memoirs or screenplays. It's when people talk about like, what's the narrative thread? of your novel. They don't mean what's the plot. They mean literally what is the evolving internal narrative your protagonist is using to make sense of what's going on as they struggle internally to try to bring their agenda to fruition. Because every, every character, but every protagonist steps onto the page with a fully formed uh, agenda, something they've wanted before they had any clue, the dark and stormy night you're about to toss them into. And scene by scene by scene by scene, they're trying to bring that to fruition. But here's the thing and why NaNoWriMo really honestly not only doesn't work, but I mean, my advice to so many is don't throw good time after bad. Don't spend a year now trying to edit or rewrite something that is never going to work anyway, because here's how we make sense of stuff. Here's where that evolving narrative comes from. It comes from our past. I just finished reading, because again, the neuroscience is just fascinating in all of this and to write this current book that has even more you know, because this current book is about not story for writers per se but for all of us in terms of if you ever want to change anyone's mind about anything here's how you need to do it and my goal with every book that I write and with every with every novel that you guys write is really stories a way to help us expand empathy and to really be able to empathize with people who otherwise we might go, what is wrong with those idiots? Understanding why they believe what they believe is what matters, yeah. not what they believe. And so in order to change anyone's mind about anything, you don't have to just know what they believe. You have to understand what it really means to them and why they, and some of that's biological. I mean, once we believe something, it literally becomes part of how we see ourselves and our self-identity. So to challenge a fact, it has nothing to do often with a fact itself, but with how we see ourselves and as important, how we fit into our own group or for lack of a better term, tribe. 
because we are all biologically people who need other people. And if we say something that our tribe disagrees with and then we stand the chance of getting ostracized, literally back a hundred thousand years ago where we got that the superpower that we actually have as, as humans, which is what leapt us to the, the top of the food chain, which is the ability not only to, 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 to see the future open-ended as opposed to like this could happen or that could happen, but what really got us there was when our brains were rewired to be more social. In other words, we are literally biologically all people who need other people. Our need to belong to a group is as biologically hardwired as our need for like food, air, and water. And so when that happened, the notion of being ostracized, it literally travels the same neural pathways as physical pain, so that it is very painful, <laughs> like literally, physically, to think that you're gonna be kicked out of your group. And that's why when you're gonna challenge someone's belief, it's not just about, well, gee, that really is climate change. It's, but if I believe this, then my group is gonna kick me out and this is what my self-identity is. And those become fighting words. And yeah. literally the brain reacts to them as if you've said, put up your dukes. So that a lot of, I mean, and I'm gonna, I want a tangent here, I know, but I wanna say one last thing on this tangent is that one of the biggest problems we have and one of the biggest bill of goods we've been sold is the way that we've been told the brain processes information and the way that we've been told it's about logic and there's objective logic and that everything's a level playing field. And if we look at things objectively, logically, we will make X, Y, or Z decision. And the thing we've got to be careful of is emotion because that's going to wreck logic and then we'll be irrational. And that literally could not be less true. The model that we have for external logic is wrong. It's just 100% wrong. It is, it is not how we are wired to perceive information. And the way that we're wired to perceive it is what has kept us alive. Yeah. It's this false model that, that often pulls us astray and that pulls us away from empathy and that allows us to vilify the thing that actually does keep us alive and the thing that actually does telegraph meaning to us. And that's emotion. Yeah. Because emotion has been captured by, by the notion of emotional, you know, which is just that narrow band of emotion that might be over the top. And yeah, you know, you might regret what you did in the morning. But when people go, oh, don't let emotion, you know, lead you astray. Don't get emotional. You know, keep calm. And I always want to go, dude, calm is an emotion. Guess what? <laughs> yeah. We are always feeling emotion. So that, so that at the end of the day, that's what stories do. And that's what that that's what we come for. We don't come for the what. We come for that internal evolving why. And that comes for what these things that happen in the story mean to us. And nothing means anything to us objectively or just simply in the moment. It comes from the past. So and I can't believe I've actually been able to remember exactly what brought me into this. Which one? <laughs> I just finished reading a book called literally Your Brain is a Time Machine by a neuroscientist, I think he's out of somewhere here in LA, and this is a, all, the, all the neuroscience literature you know, backs us up and, and, and talks about this, which is the sole purpose of your brain is to record past memories in order to predict the future, which means that when you are in the head of a character and they come on the page, their, their story-specific backstory, it is what is there on the page, it is what is guiding them all the way through, and if you have not created that, you don't have a story. You just yeah. have a happen by definition yeah this has to be done in order to get to that and NaNoWriMo forgets that it just says sit down and write it you can't go if you're now going to take it and try to edit it and now go but wait why did this character do that and what is that and you start to create that all of this is going to fall apart by definition it's going to yeah. fall apart. and what people end up doing is they go all polish it and then they start falling into that that uh, the other thing that the writing world, and again, I, I get that it seems logical. Here's the, here's the really interesting thing. Writing and, and being successful is not about writing. It's not about words. It's not about coming up with beautiful, great, fabulous words, because words, like think about it, what are words? Words are, I mean, they're just sounds or squiggles on a page or, you know, sign language if you're, you know, in terms of, of uh, you know, if you, you can't hear using sign language, they're nothing, they're empty symbols. Words are there to convey meaning. It doesn't matter how pretty you make them. It is the meaning that you're conveying that makes them beautiful. It's what's inside that counts, right? What we've been yeah. told since we were kids. It's, <laughs> and that's what you have to create 
first, which is why I think NaNoWriMo, I get it. We want to do something fast. We want to do something that feels concrete and like we can do it. And, and it feels like it's hard because sitting down and taking the time to do that every day feels hard. Yeah. But in no way does it exercise the muscle that you need to exercise to do this. And the hard part about doing it is you have to unlearn things that you've been taught from the very beginning. The two biggest things of that, I think, are, and I run into this all the time, are that what you've been taught about backstory is 100% wrong. I mean, writers often, the common thing you hear is use backstory sparingly, and then only when the reader needs to know something. Well, first of all, you never put anything in because the reader needs to know it. Not that they don't, but you put it in because that's what the protagonist is struggling with in the moment on the page in order to make the decision that the scene is forcing them to make. Because, you know, every scene has got to force your protagonist, you know, other characters as well, to make a very hard decision, hard internally, not, not, not just externally. Yeah. So, so backstory is literally the, that's where when people talk about story logic. Story logic isn't the logic of the plot. Story logic is the subjective logic that your protagonist and all your characters are using to make sense of what's happening. All of that comes from before the same way. So, so that's the one thing that backstory is literally laced into every page. It's like, I might've even said this to you probably last time as well, but I was working with a writer who said, I want to see this, you know, so she took out a highlighter. So she wanted to see how much backstory is there. And then the second thing, which we'll talk about in a second, which is the internality being in a character's head as they're making sense of it. I wanted to see, she said, how much of that is, is on the page. And she was reading Sharp Objects, which is Jillian Flynn who wrote Bond Girls, her first book her first novel. And she said, I'm halfway through the book right now. And I've highlighted 60, that's six, zero percent, 60 percent was backstory. Start reading with a, with a marker, uh, you know, the highlighter, and you will see. Because the other thing that writers are told is don't let us know what the character's thinking. I mean, the worst thing, don't let us know what the character's thinking. That's for the reader to figure out. It's like, think about that. You're trying to figure out what your, what your significant other is thinking. Do you ever get that right? Of course not. No, we come for what the characters are thinking. Right. We come for the meaning that they're reading. And that inherently comes from the past. It's not a writing rule. It has nothing to do. That's why I hate the whole creativity thing. It's not about that. It's about that is how we as humans process information. And it's and we, why we're reading so that we can at least get one person that we know what they're thinking and why, so that we can try to understand the other people that we are real, that we don't know what they're thinking and why, right? Yes, and us. I mean, that is the point. We come to story to find out what other people are thinking. What makes people tick? Why are they doing it? I see what you're doing. I need to know why. That is what we come for. We come to every story hardwired to ask tacitly, not consciously thinking, what am I going to learn here that will help me make it through the night? How is this going to help me? And the way it's going to help me is by showing me internally why people do the things that they do. That is what we come for. And that's why in a story, it's not, it's not a bunch of things. It's one thing because every character enters with that seminal misbelief, that thing that's kept them from getting what they want because they entered the story already wanting something really bad. That's the other thing. You start with NaNoWriMo, how would you know any of this? Character enters wanting something. And again, writers don't tend to think about that. I, I might've mentioned before, I was teaching a class at UCLA and I thought I was pitching a softball. Every writer was in the middle of a work in progress or, you know, or doing a rewrite. And I, I thought, oh, here's an easy question. So what does your protagonist enter the, the story wanting? Not a single person could answer the question. And there were a couple of people who were surprised it was a question. Wow. Protagonist enters the story wanting something really badly that they've wanted for a long time. The personification of it, I mean, obviously if it's gonna be a romance and they're not gonna meet the person, you know, till till chapter three. It's not like, oh yeah, they, no, they were they were psychic and they, they knew that that's what they wanted, but that person personifies what they want. And then scene by scene by scene by scene they are trying to bring that desire to fruition. And what keeps them from doing it is this misbelief, the way they see themselves or the world, something very specific that again, started when in childhood, because that is where, again, that's not some writing rule, that's biologically 
when we are forming who we are and how we see the world. Because again, none of it is a priori, you know, none of it is, is we come in and we're, you know, we are, we are to some degree a tabula rasa. We're blank when we come in. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're blank is because who knows what society we might be born into. So we come ready to be molded by the beliefs of the people around us, but we don't know that. So we don't tend to think, oh, this is what my, you know, you're seven years old and you don't think, well, this is what my parents believe, but other people believe different things. You just go, oh, this is what people believe. Oh, this yeah. is how the world works. Not, you know, if anybody's watching and it's so fabulous, I just finished watching that, uh, the Queen's Gambit last night. Right. It's so good, but it goes all the way back to, okay. In fact, it, here's why it's brilliant. And when you get to the, cause it's about chess, as I'm sure all of you know, and like, okay, how do you make chess interesting? Especially to someone like me, I know nothing about chess. And I will say, I'm one of those people who watch it and I still have no desire to ever play chess. Right, and, I watched and, the trailer and I was like, nah, there's nothing about this I wanna see. It is so, and when it, I was thinking about this consciously and this isn't really a spoiler thing because you kind of know from anything you've read that it's not like she's gonna go down in flames and like not, so you know where it's going and they get to this final match. And and you're thinking, how are they gonna make this exciting? Yeah. <laughs> doing a great job of it and the but they do because they go back to showing her now overcoming what we've been watching all the way through and a lot about and you and it makes you cry I mean and I was I marveled at how well they took something that otherwise would have been like okay so rook to king whatever the hell I don't know yeah yeah because <laughs> no it's hard you know but they did it I, it was so but that's why we were there we yeah. were there to watch her come from who she was and become this person. Yeah. And yeah. Can she become this person or will she refuse to change? Right. Exactly. And not, and not refuse is the wrong word because we, we are misbelief. It's not like, yeah, to hell with it. I'm not going to do it. It makes us feel safe. I mean, that's the things about misbeliefs. And when people, we, don't, we, we think it's true and we think it's what's keeping us safe. And she thinks this is what I need to do in order to stay safe. And this is what I need to be safe from because you can't trust people. And so I'm going to push. I mean, it's just, it's really well done. It was that ending was like, I was so, I was like, I don't want her to go away. I don't know what happens next. Right. Just brilliant. It was so good. I mean, that last oh. episode was by far the best. Oh, yeah. I, I have to say, I was really surprised. My husband and I are like, yeah, it's a Tuesday night or whatever night it was, you know, and, oh, we'll watch an episode. We'll see if it. And then we were like, okay, we need to go to bed, but we're watching this again tomorrow. We got to yeah. finish it. But yeah, so, I, so let's, yeah. let's kind of come into, feel free to use that as an example, because we did just kind of talk a little bit about what the real story was about. It's not just about a child chess prodigy. Cause that right. to me yeah. sounds boring. I right. like you, I don't know how to play chess. I wish I did, but I figure yeah, problem. I'll probably never learn. Um, but so we've talked about some of the things that is that are not the best way to start or to write a story. But let's say that you were going to write because it was based on a novel that, that you were going to write or um, or give advice to the author who had the story idea. So what are some of the things that would be the things to do in order to to start the story? Well, I mean, story? yeah, I mean, I mean, in my opinion, you start with, because most people have, we're writers, we do. I mean, that's where the, the, the curiosity, I don't like to use the word creativity, but the curiosity, well, what if, what would happen if, and it's very easy. And what most writers do is let's, let's go forward and see what would happen if, and they start writing. But instead, I mean, really what you want to do is go, okay, this is the immediate rest. I got to go back because again, this work that we're talking about doing isn't pre-writing. It's not like research. It's not like, you know, what you do until you get to the real stuff. Most of this, again, think about what that, that woman said, but 60% is backstory. This catapults onto the page in the form of the memories, the backstory, the, and also even the pieces that don't, it creates the balls in play that are, that, you know, are going to, where the, where the plot's going to, you know, plot often starts to auto-populate. So it's that, and then, okay, so then who is your protagonist? Who is that one person whose story it's going to be? Because it's not about what happens. It's about how that is going to transform them internally. So it's really going, okay, who is that person, you know, and thinking about them before they have some notion of what's going to happen before they have any idea of the dark and stormy night, where are they in their lives? What do they want? How are they envisioning what's going to happen, you know, in the next say, year of their life or however long, you know, the, the, you know, the, the span of your novel is going to be. 
who are they at that moment? And then kind of going back after that and going, okay, what do they want? What are they entering the story really wanting? And just to be very clear, this takes a long time. And when I say, what do they want? I don't mean answer it in a simple declarative sentence and then go forward. You've got to dig down. What do they want? And then what's holding them back? What is this misbelief? Again, which comes in. And, you know, and if, if, you're, if you want to talk about the Queen's Gambit, it went back and we saw where things came from in her life. We saw in, in flashbacks. The, the, if you ever saw the series, um, The Killing, which is a fabulous. Oh, yes. Uh, it does that so well. It comes the very the last episode shows exactly. You literally get the thing that happened with her mom. But it's oh, that's such a good show. I love that show. Anyway, but so you'd go back and you'd go, okay, so what is this misbelief? Again, a misbelief about human nature, not a factual one. Like I thought she was my mother, but it turned out she was my sister. Like that could be true. Yeah. But it's uh, where did this come from? You know, what happened that really, you know, changed that the way that character saw things. And again, not just changed it, but changed it in terms of when something changes the way we see things, it changes what we do. It changes our expectations. It changes what we think we need to do in order to get our needs met, because that's what we're doing when we're kids, right? I mean, we've talked about that, you know, Maslow's pyramid of needs. And he talks about at the, you know, the top is like, you know, connection and sense of purpose. And the bottom is food, water, shelter. But that is not the first thing we need. We need somebody who cares enough about us to give us those things when we're kids. So we're, it's literally life or death for us as kids. Cause if we screw up and mom and dad go, yeah, we, we put your stuff out on the sidewalk. <laughs> good luck to you. And you're six years old. It's like, yeah, good luck. So yeah. you really so you go back and misbeliefs tend to come in relatively early in life. So you'd figure that out, but then you would go back to and create, okay, what happened? And literally write it out in scene form, literally down in the moment, not the character standing on page one and looking back and going back when I was 11, blah, 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 but she is 11 and it is that moment. And she goes in wanting something. And there's the worldview that's personified of what she believes she's going to get, what she expects. And she does it. And this challenges something that now she comes out of it believing something very different that she feels if she thought about it, lucky to have learned young because it's going to help her. But yeah. instead of helping her, it hurts her because it, it's literally the thing that's now keeping her from getting that thing that she wanted. And then that ricochets through her life and you would be creating, again, not examples of the way that that affects her life. You don't go from that to, okay, so now her misbelief is the nicer someone is to you, the more they're trying to use and abuse you. Now she's 29 and she's still got that belief. You need to figure out how that has directed her life, how that has caused her to make decisions that have probably landed her in the situation that she's in when she steps onto page one, think of it as a cause and effect trajectory. When you think about what kicks off your story, you know, what, what pushes your character out of that, that comfort zone that they're in, because that's what happens in the very beginning. And now they've got to deal with this thing. This is really where it starts. This is yeah. really the beginning of it. And when they get finally back up to page one, not only because, I mean, think about if you were to think right now about the next year of your life, it's not a blank slate where you would fill it in most of it that you'd think about what would be happening to you in the next year is because you're already in the middle of it right now, right? Yeah, and you're not yeah. in the middle of things, you're in the middle of what those things mean to you and how you feel about it. Well, same thing is true of your protagonist and truthfully, all your characters. So all of this, I tend to liken it to, you know how, unplug it before you do, but you know how like they're electrical cables and if you cut them like through the, what I'm looking at one now, going, is it rubber, is it plastic, whatever insulates it. Yeah. They're all those like copper wires. These are all copper wires that go forward. You've got the copper wire of what the character wants. You've got the copper wire of the, the misbelief that's keeping them from it. But you've got all sorts of other layers to that. Because when you think about why anybody does anything, it's not binary. It's not either or. And it's not love or hate. It's I'm doing this because I'd be embarrassed if I didn't. I'm doing it because my mother always told me to. I'm doing it because I think that this person will love me if I do. I'm doing it because I shouldn't do it. I mean, in other yeah. words, it's layered. Yeah. Any reason why we do anything is layered. And it all comes from the past. And that misbelief will pick up supporting misbeliefs. It will be challenged you know, all the way through, this is, without this, without this underlying web of logic, internal subjective logic, the meaning that the protagonist is reading into the, into what's happening, all you've got is a bunch of things that's happening. Right. And that's the trouble with NaNoWriMo. You start, and there are no layers. 
and you've got this blank thing going forward and you end up with just a bunch of things that happen. I would never do NaNoWriMo. I would never suggest anybody do it. I would never, and I know that you might, you might be hating me now and that is totally fine. Um, but I think it's a, a massive waste of time. And for, for all the people who go, well, yeah, I did. And then I rewrote and look, I've got blank. There are thousands of people thousands and thousands and thousands of people who've given up and it kills me because they give up because they think, I guess I'm not a writer. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not a writer. It just doesn't. I mean, I have worked with people where they've come in with something and it's like, Oh, you know, what is this? It's, and they start to, to, to I think of two or three people who I'm working with right now. And when they first came in, it was like, what is this? And literally because they had it because they really are good by, you know, the third or fourth session, it was like, this is so good. I feel like I'm reading a published novel because when you do this, there's far less rewriting because you're rewriting as you go. If you don't know, you go back and you figure it out. It is yeah. never good to go. I'll figure it out later because that means that all the stuff the character is doing from the point where you realize you, it's like, once you figure it out, they're probably not going to do that stuff. It just, right. it, I mean, that notion of the shitty first draft as Anne Lamott calls it. And I love Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird. I love all those birds, except that thing that she says when she calls the first draft, you know, a child's draft. She says it romps. And it's like worst advice ever because it, it you know, it, you, when you get it at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of things that happen and you have belief in it that becomes foundational. And then you're trying to keep as much of it. And then you decide you're not a writer. So you decide to, you know, unleash your creativity and like, you know, interpretive dance or something. And that's a really bad idea. <laughs> Don't do that. So, I love what you say in your book. We have too many interpretive dancers already. <laughs> we I'll, I'll never forget watching one who was doing this. It was called, it was called raking the plankton and she was on a stage with nothing and a fake rake and she went back and raked nothing back and forth for 15 minutes that felt like all of 2020 <laughs> it was like i mean I, I, it was like suit me now anyway yeah not yeah. a fan of dance. but would you say that if people are listening and thinking okay well let me think of some things in my life like for instance um i'm part of the tribe that is my family but my right. family is split up into a couple of different tribes that are various political parties say, you know, and so now we have some differentiation. And within that, there's also the group of people who are in the tribe of people who maybe, I don't know, um, go to church or something. And then we've also got this other tribe and I'm trying to manage all of my tribes. And then I start seeing, this is what my character is doing. My character is trying to figure out, do I fit in at my workplace? If I do this thing, will I not fit in at my workplace, but I'll fit in at my family? So which one's more important to me? How do I manage my, my decisions? Well, I mean, if you're asking, because if, here's the thing. If you know walking in what the character wants and from the past, why they want it. And again, none of the, this is like doing a ton of work what that misbelief is that holds them back, that becomes the driver going through. And those things become important or not, depending on how they help that character solve that particular problem. And it's, I mean, in other words, that's why I don't use the word subplot anymore at all, because I mean, it, like, what's a subplot? I can't define it. You know, I could, I could make up some big general thing. And I realized one thing I change in story genius, because I do use the term, you know, blank subplot, I would never do that again. I've changed it to storyline, because let's face it, in most stories, subplots are, you know, are, are, are enacted by one person's storyline. But all of those, and I don't think there is a such thing as a subplot. People will go like from the, the story, you know, the A story and the B story, no such thing. It's, there is the plot, there is the main driver and everything else revolves off of that. Everything else gets its meaning in terms of how it's affecting that. So once you know what that driver is, what that character wants and what they're going after, you understand how the religion part would fit in or how the other, they're not equal. A story is one problem that grows, escalates and complicates one. So it wouldn't be, well, I don't know how to deal with my parents over here, but I'll do this for work and I'll do that. And there are all these separate things. And then the reader's going, I don't know what's important. I don't know where we're going. I don't know why any of this matters. Yeah. One, I always want to use that analogy, like out of, uh, out of Lord of the Rings, you know, one ring that binds them all. Yeah. The driver is the one ring that are nine of them, right? But there's one ring that binds them all. That's your driver. Everything else gets its meaning by how it's affecting that. If it's not, it doesn't matter. So they might have all of that, a bifurcated, trifurcated. Why is there only bifurcated? Why isn't there quad? Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
yeah. all the different I mean which ones matter it might not matter what's going on with a religion or it might not matter what's going on at work or it might not matter that she hasn't talked to her sister and whatever like it's irrelevant because it doesn't fit into this problem that they're dealing yeah but for the things that do a lot of times our one problem does affect more than one part of our life right and more than one tribe that we're trying to manage how we're gonna absolutely but it goes to the one problem that they're trying to solve and if it doesn't affect that it doesn't matter 100 percent doesn't if it's not we're going through looking for the answer to that question what are they going to do and we know what the story question is almost always and that's the other thing and another reason why you want to know i mean i was speaking probably maybe since we last talked um in a at a, a scbwi the society of children's book writers and illustrators conference in cedar rapids iowa um and uh i think it was jill santapolo who's a brilliant writer and, and editor was also speaking and i think she was the one who said that in college her mentor told her the first paragraph is a promise you make to your reader. And that is so true. I've heard true. that so and many that, times. That promise is where are we going? What is this problem we're going to be solving here? Why should I throw my my you know, throw myself in? I mean, writers will often not do that because they go, I'll throw into some sort of action and then they'll want to know. And it's like, dude, you just, you just left off the page the reasons why we would want to know give it to us. Don't hold back. Another one of the big writing is hold things back for a reveal later. I mean, rarely do that. Hardly ever do that because you've kept off the page what would make us go forward. Anyway. So, so what do you think should be on the first page then? Oh, well, the first page always is something out of the ordinary is happening to someone. Hopefully that person's the protagonist because your reader's going to assume that it is, right? Yeah. And the protagonist is the reader's avatar throughout. So the protagonist is literally the way things are affecting the protagonist is where the meaning from everything in your plot comes from, right? Nothing has any meaning if it's not affecting your protagonist and not affecting them just in the moment, you know, in some sort of one-off way, but in terms of this, of this agenda. So you've got something's happening to them that's going to cost them something. Something hangs in the balance and they've got to make a difficult decision. And this is where the backstory comes in. Because think about in your own life, if you've got to make a difficult decision, well, the things that you're weighing inherently come from the past. Right. So the past always comes in. I mean, you know, books you can look at for this, like there's that great um, Simon versus the Homeo Sapiens Agenda, which is a great YA. They made a movie out of it called Love, Simon. And he realized like the first two lines, I think, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm turning my head away because I think, oh my God, of all the books, I don't have it right here on my, my bookcase, but I, I usually do. It should be right there and it's not. But the first two lines are something like, it was an, an oddly strange conversation. I almost didn't realize I was being blackmailed. So we get that he's being blackmailed right there in the first page, but then we get a whole bunch of backstory and why being blackmailed is a bad thing for him. And it's not about, I'll have to give this kid my, he's, I think he's 16 years old at the time. And what has happened is, He's gay. He's not come out, not because he's afraid he's going to get, you know, ostracized by his family or his friends, but just because with all of us, we are who we are. People see us in a certain way and to just be, be different in any way is going to change things. And he thinks I'll go to college. I'll come out then. That'll be fine. But he through, it doesn't even matter how or why, he's sort of gotten together online with this other boy at school and they're going back and forth with code names. So that he doesn't know who this boy is. He's Jacques and I think the other kid is blue. And he has accidentally left a computer open at school and his Gmail account is there and this kid sits down and sees this, this back and forth. And so what he's blackmailing him for, so, there, so there's the blackmail, that's what it's about. But it's not just if you don't do what I want. And again, it goes even deeper because what this kid wants isn't give me all your lunch money or I'll tell the world. It's you have this girl who's a friend of yours who I have a crush on. Could you hook us up? Right? Wow. <laughs> so now he's asking Simon to betray someone who he really likes. And the reason Simon doesn't want any of this to come out isn't just then the world will know I'm gay. It's that he's afraid if it comes out and Blue gets outed, and they haven't met yet, so he's dying for them to get together and kiss her, you know, is that Blue feels like his family might ostracize him. So it's about, in other words, see all the layers that are there? Yeah. And we get all of this in the first, I think, six pages. 
So we really have this yardstick of this is what's going on. This is why it matters. And it goes, you know, all the way through, you know, or if you look at brill another brilliant book, which I do have right here, again, these are all YAs, but you know, all the bright places, which is a fabulous YA. And the first, the first lines of it are, is today a good day to die? <laughs> it's literally the first line. We know where we're gonna go. This is something I ask myself in the morning when I wake up in third period when I'm trying to keep my eyes open while Mr. Schroeder drones on and on at the supper table as I'm passing the green beans at night when I'm lying awake because my brain won't shut off due to all there's to think about is today the day and if not today, when? It's like, I'm hooked. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, and then it goes in and this is a book for those of you who are thinking, but wait a minute, what if I have dual protagonists? This book actually seems to, and again, if you read this book, I think the first, and this is the one good thing about Amazon, you can go onto Amazon and read the first three pages of any book. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. the first six pages, we get, we get him, Theo is this character's name, and then Violet, and there's a great way that there's this fabulous misunderstanding that comes for the whole world. And so it's like dual protagonists, but the actual truth is it's Violet's story. She's really what I would call the alpha protagonist, even though we get them all the way through. But you gotta give it to us right there. We gotta know the journey we're going on. Yeah. And the thing is, if you tell us that what it is, that's what makes us as readers believe you, right? That's what makes right. us go, oh, I can trust this person because I know I'm going on this journey and they know where I'm going. And you know that feeling when you first start reading, I liken it to, and I would never have the courage to do this ever, but you know when they talk about like, like I think, I think businesses do that. Like we're all gonna get together and we'll learn to trust each other. And they do those trust fall things. Oh you yeah. Know, on a ladder and you go backwards. Like I, I, I don't even wanna get up on the ladder. <laughs> I'll fall back and I'm like, I don't think I could ever do that. But, um, but I, it's kind of like that when you start reading, it's like, does this, does this writer have the authority to keep me going? Can I do the trust fall into the story and trust them not to let me slam onto the ground? Yeah. That's what the first few pages are. And if you don't have that, so we really get that there's something at stake so that we're really into this world, not for its own sake, but the, you know, that line I always like to use out of Elizabeth George's, uh, what came before he shot her, Joel Campbell, age 11 at the time began his descent uh, toward murder. Uh, with a bus ride. I mean, okay. Right, right. I've heard this out opening before. I haven't read the book. Yeah, I know where I'm going. And the thing about that book is that's that murder then is not mentioned again until the long book, until page 600, until it happens. Never mentioned. If you redacted that one sentence, I don't know that you'd read the book because yeah. you wouldn't have the yard. You wouldn't go, where are we going? What's the point? You and have so this is this is what other uh, writing teachers are calling the story promise, the reason why we're going to go on this journey with you, right? Right, yeah, yeah, you could call it that, exactly, exactly. Okay. Yes, you could totally, but you gotta put that literally first paragraph, first page, first right there and spell it out. Don't, don't write, I gotta hold it back, I gotta be cagey, do not. Readers want the specifics. The story is in the specifics. If you give them something general, they are not going to want to go forward to find out the specifics because they don't even know what they might be. We need that, that, that map. We need that yardstick. We need that North Star. We need to know what it is and where we're going. If we don't, why would we go there? Oh, this is so interesting. And it kills me because I know that we need to let you get back. You've got another call. And I, I feel like this is the opposite of 2020. It's been like 10 minutes. I want to keep talking, but no, it's been an hour. <laughs> um, there's a hundred things that I want to um, talk about with you and, and tell you how much I, I love in your books. And for people who are watching on YouTube, I'm just holding them up. Uh, Wired for Story was the first one. And then Story Genius was the second one. Let's see if we can get that to show up. There we go. Um, I love them both. And now a new book that will be not so much for writers, but maybe for business people and that sort of thing. Yeah, and truly for the world. It's like I have a long thing in there as an example of if you want to, you know, trying to get your kid to stop texting and driving. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Good luck with that one. I think yeah. that's so important. So, so yeah, I mean, it really is. And the first 80 pages really are... Uh, the neuroscience of how and why we do what we do. And I think it, and it's so the opposite of what we've been taught. And my whole goal with all of it is kindness, meaning it's even with all of them go, well, you've made this choice or you're hewing to this story or you're, and it's like, no, we believe a lot of those 
things that lead us astray, not because there's something wrong with us, not because we're stubborn, not because you know we're idiots, but because our biology thinks it's keeping us safe. Like that voice in your head that says, oh, you're a terrible writer, or you can't do this, or what's, it's not mean to you the same way a schoolyard bully might be mean to you. It's mean to you because it thinks it's saving you from mortification. And it's wrong. It's just yeah. wrong. You know, but it's not trying to be mean. It has your best interests at heart. It just doesn't really understand what that is because it was wired way back when, when you didn't have the choice because you had to survive. So, you know, it's not about choice. We can't, when people go, oh, let it go. You can't choose to let something go. It's got you. You have to find a way to unwire it. That's the only way. And that's what stories do. They help us unwire. Oh, and that's why they're so important. I'm such a big proponent of, of that any of us definitely, absolutely could write any book, but also pretty much a story that could change the world. If it changes one person's life and that person changes the world, then done. I've done my work for my lifetime. <laughs> exactly. So true. Uh, Lisa, where, where can people find you and your books? Uh, well, my books are everywhere. I mean, you know, Amazon or you know, wherever books are sold. Um, uh, and you can find me on my website, which is just simply wiredforstory.com. And that is where I am. And I, I am one of those people. I have never been addicted to anything. I've never smoked. I don't really drink. Um, but I am addicted to email and I am addicted to looking at that. So you can email me from my website and you'll probably see it. Oh, I don't know, within 30 seconds. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> embarrassing admission, but I am addicted to, you know, to, to all of that. So that's how awesome. you can find it. Excellent. And um, on your website, you probably have um, links to, uh, I know that in your longer um, bio that I didn't read all of, uh, you have a course on Creative Live, right? And another yeah. one on lynda.com? Exactly. Several courses on Creative Live and uh, a course on lynda.com as well. And so, a TEDx talk. And a TEDx talk, yes. Excellent. I that's just want I people to know all the places. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I love talking to you. I love talking about this stuff. This was really interesting. Thank you. Oh, my utter pleasure. And just last thing to writers is you really are the most powerful people on the planet because you really do have the opportunity to change how people see the world, how people see themselves, and what people go out and do in the world simply by giving them a glimpse of life, letting them experience life through your protagonist's subjective reality. That's the power of story. And once you have it, use it wisely. Mm -hmm.